Good morning. I'm excited to be um, sitting here and sharing with you, uh, especially in response to the feedback that was so um, inviting, saying, you know, we want to hear from those black folks up there about (laughs) 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 what's up with that, you know. Anyway, (laughs) I think the most... um, loving thing for me is to be invited to teach, to be invited to be, um, to be speaking to a group that wants to hear the Dharma from, from my land. So I'm excited. It warms my heart to kind of show up in this form because it's in response to a welcome. And then the system rearranges itself to, to be in relationship, in love with with what's offered. So thank you for the opportunity. We're kind of midway through this week on the worldly dharmas. And um, Bonnie started us off with this very lovely um, guided meditation on benevolence. And I don't know about you, but for me it created a certain atmosphere for us to examine the worldly dharmas through the lens of metta through the lens of benevolence, of love. And then Temple provided us with an overview of the paramis. And the paramis, for me, are the um, qualities of heart that can be cultivated to cross the floods of our lives. You know, we walk through the floods of our lives with these qualities of heart for the benefit of all beings. And so the paramis are just kind of ways that um, keep us in our seat as we move through the floods in our lives. And then Pascal talked about renunciation and gratitude and, and the power of, of um, not holding so tightly to anything um, that arises and how in that space of letting go Um, we get to know a deeper ground of being of who we are in the letting go, in the renouncing, in the knowing that we can't hold on to anything. And then Andrea spoke about the inner ethics. What is it, uh, what can we really tap into and know deeply and be be from a place of choice? from this place of inner ethics, of non-harming. And then Larry wove us in a beautiful ceremony last night around storytelling and how this tradition is steeped in telling stories and teaching from a place of heart and compassion and care for all. And uh, to this morning I want to talk about belonging. I want to talk about the diversity that is within belonging and speak a little bit about severed belonging. So I want to talk not so much about the individual selves that we represent, but the collective, the constellation of experiences that make up our lives that we all walk with. So prior to um, devoting myself to the Dharma and to teaching the Dharma, I left my well-paying job. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) 
my uh, corporate job as um, as a training and uh, organizational development consultant, and I worked within Levi Strauss and Intel corporations. And what I specialized in was uh, leadership coaching around the power dynamics of culture inside of organizations. And I especially spent time working in, in the Silicon Valley area on the behavioral implications of mergers and acquisitions. So what happens when you bring cultures, when you bring diversity together, there's a predictable uh, dynamic uh, that we can begin to see and notice and attend to which is what we get to do if, if the focus is not just on greed, aversion, and delusion, <laughs> and power, and profit, and all those things. If we start looking at the relational quality of culture, how we um, dance with each other, what's really important, what's at play, then we start to unravel, um, or kind of become intimate with a deeper story. So I want to talk about that collective piece a little bit. But let me first uh, uh, talk about the the two truth doctrine that the that's taught in our tradition. There's the ultimate reality and relative reality, just as a form of context. And in the ultimate reality, I'm a nobody, right? I'm this formless, undefined, um, vast skinless body of awareness, just, just a vast, infinite body of awareness. In the relative world, I'm somebody. I'm, I'm this form, and, you know, I'm Ruth King, and I'm a great-grandmother, I'm African-American, I'm all these things. You know, we have all these identities. But in the ultimate realm, I'm, I'm kind of dust particles, floating in the wind, and every now and then there'll be a conglomerate or an aggregate or a constellation that forms that kind of defines a certain sense of who I think I am for that moment. And then a strong wind will come, and that's all <laughs> dead and gone. You know. So in the, um, in the relative world, we're, we're part of these constructs, um, and uh, we hold on to things out of fear. We're looking for fear so we construct selves to be safe. But in the ultimate reality, um, there's no safety because there's nothing to fear. So there's these, you know, these, these two realities are really two expressions of one truth. And, you know, when we go on retreat, we start to touch in and taste this ultimate reality. And we know this sense of vastness and oneness and spaciousness and the freedom that the body actually experiences in that place. And you know, con uh, commonly when we're leaving a retreat and going back into the, into the what some people call it, the real world, uh, we start to feel these contractions of self because we are in relationship in this relative realm. T.S. Eliot says that the external is outside of time, yet it is only in time 
that the fruits of spiritual liberation can manifest. So these are two expressions of the same truth. And it is our bodies, it is our relative, it is our kinship, our relationship to this collective realm that polishes this third jewel of the Sangha. We actually need each other to wake up. We need each other to know intimately um, whether our practice is actually our practice. We know that from our relationship with each other. So belonging is a relative necessity for awakening. It's not some casual thing. It's a relative necessity for awakening. And it's our kinship, our senses, this body as a vehicle that is the, is the thing that helps calibrate um, um, our practice, helps us fine-tune uh, the deeper truth. It's so in our relatedness. So we might consider that we are here to embrace our membership in each other's lives. Our membership. That there's something about this collection showing up in this room at this time that has something to do with your awakening. Not just you individually sitting on the cushion and gaining insight. But this whole soup, Tanisara says that we're all a soup that we need to taste. That we bring this ingredient to the table that supports a flavor of awakening that we're trying to touch into. And we long for it. We long for it. Martin Luther King says it well. And I could just see him sitting and saying this. He's probably doing something like this. Okay. All I'm saying is this. That's how it starts. That all life is interrelated. That somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And for some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be without you being what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is a bodhisattva speaking. This is somebody that's embodied in the paramis, the deep understanding of both relative and ultimate reality. And Thich Nhat Hanh says that there's no such thing as an individual. This is the soup of our ultimate um, reality. There's no such thing as an individual. And in the Mahayana tradition, the bodhisattvas, takes, they take vows to um, be in the world. And the vows are pretty lofty. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Whoa. <laughs> Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them. 
Dharma teachings are boundless. I vow to master them. The, Dhar- the Buddha's enlightenment, enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So this is, this, this, these vows center around um, an understanding of our interdependence. It doesn't mean we're going to go one by one and do this with people. It's an understanding that our practice is homeopathic, that a little bit is a lot. A drop of us living an embodied intention that is for the benefit of all beings. When we cultivate this bodhicitta, this mind-heart, for the benefit of all beings, that's the homeopathic quality of radiance that we make available to the collective. So as walking with a radiant heart, with good intention, with an understanding of the collective, with a heart wide open, that is the bodhisattva's path. It's the dedicated practitioner's path. It's an understanding that our radiance is homeopathic. So what we do matters, and we're all conditioned, but I just want you to do this brief little thing without talking. I just want you to turn to someone, and if you don't feel comfortable just looking at them, then it's okay to just have your eyes downcast. But I just want you to turn to someone right just near you, and I'm going to read out a couple of phases, and as you look at them, I want you to just think about these few phases. Just don't, don't make a big move. Just turn to someone nearby. And take a breath here. This is only going to take a minute, so just pause here and look or just have your presence um, be fully there. And just consider, if I didn't belong to you, I wouldn't have come. Just consider that and notice what that's like. If you didn't belong to me, you wouldn't be here. I'm you. You just don't recognize me just yet. And consider that the guest is always God. And God is whoever is in front of you. Or we can say this a little differently. The guest is always the Buddha, and the Buddha is whatever is in front of you. So just close your eyes for a moment, right where you are, and just notice the energetics of what you're feeling. Because our entire nervous system is involved in this intimate inquiry of our belonging. 
Just see what happens, what's happening inside with kind noticing. And you can open your eyes now and bow to your partner and return to your seat. So, um, we all belong to each other, and, um, and we forget that. We forget that in our lives. Ajahn Tejaniya says that people only become awake and alert when there is some sort of discomfort or distress. They stop paying attention once they are comfortable again. So I want you to consider throughout this morning session and and maybe through the rest of the week that discomfort is a core competency for awakening. That when you're uncomfortable, you're right in the zone. (laughs) You're right, you know, you're right there. So consider that discomfort is a core competency for awakening. Because what does stress or discomfort do? It gets our attention. And what we do next is important. So we have severed belonging in our collective realm. Severed belonging for any number of reasons. Some of the reasons are historical, or a lot of it is rooted in our history and our conditioning and how we've been touched and shaped by life, by our upbringing, by our karmic inheritance, by our ancestral inheritance. Um, And there's there's, uh, cultural conditioning that. We have uh, disappointments that result in a certain amputation of heart, where we get into conflicts with people or we have views about things and then we cut that out. It's like, I'm not going there. I'm not going to that neighborhood. I'm not going to that news station. I'm, not, I'm just not going there. And after a while, we've cut off so many of our body parts. We actually can convince ourselves that we can move it through the world without recognizing that we're hurting from the amputation, that there's a blood trail (laughs) left behind, that um, the way we relate is actually being witnessed by others and maybe uh, replicated. But we move through the world with a certain woundedness from the severing, but we don't always feel that. And we slice people, situations, places out of our lives. Then we come into a spiritual practice hungry, not realizing that we're hungry for the other that we have severed. And we don't do this consciously. We do this as humans. This is what we do. This is what we learn to do. Underneath it, we're trying to not hurt ever again. It's amazing what we do to make sure we'll never be hurt again. And I think that that's 
a piece of um, what we ultimately bump into in this practice. As we're going towards a liberated heart, we're going to feel these places of severing. And we may not even know what they're about, but the body knows what's happening. So these severs are rooted in our conditioning, in our survival, and in our love. And the hunger when we come into spiritual communities, and especially when these communities are diverse, we find ourselves hungry for how we belong. You know, I woke up this morning thinking about this talk, and I'm such a neurotic when it comes to preparing these talks. You just wouldn't believe, you know. And so I was asking myself this morning, what is it? What's, why, why, you know, why do you get so, you know? And what I came to so immediately and surprisingly again is that it, it matters. My um, membership in this community matters to me. So I was noticing what I'm doing to make sure the belonging and any rupturing is as minimized as possible. So Gloria Steinem says it best. She says, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. So, <laughs> so the truth of, you know, acknowledging that this collective matters, what I bring matters, you know, um, is important. Albert Einstein says that a human being is part of the whole, called by us, universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us in our personal desires and to affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the world of nature in its beauty. That's our task. I think as we have the audacity to liberate our hearts, we open this field and we begin to pay attention to our relational impact, not just at the individual level, but for all beings. So I want to examine... um, For the last five years, I've been offering a retreat called Mindful of Race to different sangha, leadership sanghas throughout. And it's a retreat that uh, helps us wake up around uh, some of the dynamics, the racial power dynamics that are alive and well in our sanghas um, and um, how we kind of recommit ourselves to uh, seeing those dynamics and and doing what we can to to shift those dynamics. So I'd like to bring a piece of that technology, if you will, or that information into this setting because I think it really supports us as we look at worldly dharmas and our relationship to it. 
And this teaching has three parts to it. There's looking at, a, looking at our identities from the individual lens, our individual identities, which we've actually done a beautiful job of last night when we look at the storytelling, when we look at our inner ethics. You know, we're looking at our individual practice. And in fact, sitting on the cushion is, is a strong... Uh, uh, body of uh, practice for us to wake up to some of our individual pieces. But there's also our group identities. There's our group identities, these, these identities that we have that touch and shape our lives. They represent like little subcultures, and we all have a variety of them. And it's just the way we've been conditioned um, to be joined and related to in our lives. So we have the individual identities, group identities, and then there's institutional identities. And I'd like to talk about some of the characteristics that represent these three identities. So um, at the individual level, what we can acknowledge is that we're all good human beings. You know, we come into the world with a basic goodness. Uh, we have a good heart. We sit on the cushion. We practice with good intention. We work with what arises and what passes away. And we tap into that place of... Uh, of uh, Liberation, we kind of touch it and taste it, and we know that it's a big part of who we fundamentally are. We can reflect, like in the sutta where the Buddha was teaching Rahula how to reflect before, during, and after a situation, a conflict. We can really examine ourselves in a deep way uh, at the individual level. And then there's this group level these group identities that we have. When we show up on the cushion, we don't just bring our individual selves. We bring our group identities to the cushion. We bring what's troubling our heart, what's got our attention, got us by the throat. We bring that to our passion. We bring our relational world, our children, our, all of that, or, or our, whatever it is, we bring our group identities. So what I'd like for you to do uh, is there's that handout that I asked you all to have. And along that first, um, did you get one? Okay. Go that way. So in this first, uh, let me just say something about this form first because I know that... Uh, There's probably a lot of categories I've left out here in terms of group identities. And there's probably, um, you know, when I'm teaching work on diversity, I always say everybody gets 10 get-out-of-jail-free cards because we always screw up something. So, so I might lose about three of my little cards just on this form because I've left somebody out or didn't quite get it right or misspelled something. So uh, just know my, that, that I understand that. 
Also around these group identities, also looking at the ultimate and relative reality. These group identities represent the relative side, but, but the ground of our being is, um, these are just expression of trees. If you think about all the different types of trees in the world, um, that could be one way of looking at group identities, but we're all part of the same soil. We're all in the ground, the ground of our being. So what I want you to just um, do for now is, is to complete that first column. Just very, I don't want you to spend a lot of time on it because it's not the, not the point. And the first one of handedness is just being a little funny. Like, how many of you are right-handed? Okay, so you would put right-handed in there. How many of you are left-handed? And you would put left-handed in there. And I'll explain that a little bit more as we go through it. But just go through and to the best, you know, not trying to get it precise, but getting the flavor here and just completing that first column any way that uh, makes sense for you. And, and also manage your own disclosure. We're going to be sharing this. So I want you to make sure you're um, talking about things that you want to talk about not just because I'm asking you to. And just take one more minute here. Okay, and that other category at the bottom, um, you know, you get a sense here of maybe something that's not represented, but that is strongly 
impact in your life right now. Like my mother, my partner and I are caring for her 92-year-old mother. And that's a particular identity um, that's um, impacting our lives just around managing her care and um, the health care system and, you know, all of those things. So you, you would know um, what's unique for you to put in this category, given your life. And it may not be anything um, just yet, but that there's a place to add something that might not be represented. So these group identities um, is where I want to spend a little time because uh, these, are, these are places that we hold membership in that's been a part of helping us survive or thrive, whether we know it or not. Um, sometimes these identities are things we take for granted and don't think twice about. Um, Sometimes there are um, group identities that we don't even, that we even deny or may not even realize that that was something that's called an identity. (laughs) Um, And then some of these group identities could actually be in conflict with each other. You know, when I look at the collective part of it, for example, you know, being African American and also being lesbian in my memberships crossing together sometimes can be conflictual, where it's, you know, not okay with my African-American folks that are in the, you know, in the church. And, I mean, there are stories about that. So sometimes my membership are in conflict with each other because I love my life or these, these places that uh, make me kind of who I am in this relative realm. So our group identities can be in conflict with each other. And any number of dynamics can happen. But what's important to keep in mind as I talk about some of this is that I'm talking about the collective. I'm not talking to the individual right now or to just the individual experience. I'm talking about the aggregates of sankaras, the constellations that uh, form, that impact our lives. And we all know that these group identities in and of themselves are not an issue, but they're not all created equal. We know that at a collective level, that there's various weights put on different identities in our collective realm that's worthy of our attention, our heart, especially as we look at sila, non-harming. So um, let me just talk about that a little bit. Uh, There's the, sometimes I use the image of stars and constellations. So we can look in the sky and we can see a variety, just a whole sky full of stars. And and that that's a, uh, we could just say we're all stars. And uh, then there are constellations that the eye, is, the eye is trained to see. The eye is trained to see the Big Dipper or the, the Gemini twins or whatever, you know. We train the eye to see in the picture of the old woman, young woman in, in some of the Gestalt teachings. We train the eye to see that. 
So I was uh, in a post conversation um, in the Charlotte area after Michael Brown was, was killed. And um, we were put in a small group to do a discussion about, to talk about, you know, what's your impression of what happened? You know, how do you feel about it? And I was in a group with mostly white people. And um, the um, one, one white male said, when it was her, his turn, he said, I'm, I'm so disturbed that a young man could be shot like that. And, um, and my heart is broken, and it, and it just shouldn't be that way. And I felt the sincerity, and you know, I mean, that, this was his explanation of the story. And when I spoke, I talked about the, um, what pains me is, among other things, is, is that so many African-American unarmed men were being killed by white police officers with guns. So there was the difference in the view of the situation was one was looking at the individual stars, the individual situation. And I felt his heart, I felt his sincerity. It's the difference of looking at the stars versus the, the constellation. When I look at that, I see the pattern. Why do I see the pattern? Because of how it impacts my life, how it impacts the collective. So these are things, the, the, the same, you know, I, I don't think there was a lack of love in this exchange. It was just what, what you're used to seeing when you look at the sky, when you look at the collective. So it was one of the ways we really miss each other in talking about uh, belonging. And, and how we see it, how we've been conditioned to see things. So at the group level of our identities, um, we have these, these, uh, this, this notion of um, dominant culture and subordinated culture, staying at the collective here. So when you think about U.S. culture as a collective, and you look at this list, what would you say is a dominant race in U.S. culture? Caucasian. What is the dominant ethnicity in U.S. culture? European. What is the uh, dominant religion in, U in U.S.? Christianity. <laughs> What's the dominant gender? Okay. What's the dominant sexual orientation? Got it. What's the dominant age? I'm, in, I'm closer to 70 than 60, and I'm telling you, it's not that. <laughs> and you start to feel it based on which kind of group you're in, right? What about social economic status in terms of what gets heard, what doesn't? Upper class, okay. So you get the idea. At a collective level, we can see what's, what the profile is 
around dominance at the collective level. It doesn't mean that all white people experience, you know, the privilege. What it means is that um, at a group level, in terms of what's dominant, that that's the momentum in our culture. I'm kind of hesitant to take questions because I think uh, we're going to get in a group and have a moment. So can you hold off? All right. So um, what I'd like for you to do is to look at these next two columns on this form and just as a collective, see if you can check where, given your group identity, does it, is, it a, is it part of the dominant culture or the, subordinate, the subordinated culture? And just check those boxes. It would be checks. <clears throat> It's whatever you think your age is. Is your age group dominant or do you think your age group is dominant or subordinate in our culture? And once again, I'd like for you to just turn to maybe three people right near you get in clusters, not make a big movement in the room. And I'd like for you to share what you have in common and, and share the diversity around where you've made these checks. So just kind of sharing these second two columns and seeing where you have some things in common and where, you're, where, you're, where there's diversity. So just turning to groups of three or four, just to see what you have. <clears throat> 